Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Aaron Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast. My podcast about immigrants, immigration, and everything in between. It's Tuesday, and you'll know what that means. Another episode of An Immigrant's Life. Thank you for joining me every week. If you are new here, welcome, and thank you as well. For extra content, or if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at An Immigrant's Life or through email at animmigrantslife at yahoo.com. You can listen to the podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast. For the Apple Podcast listeners, I'd appreciate if you give a five-star rating and a short and sweet review. It's not much to ask, but it means a lot to me. Now, usually at this point, I should be talking about the episode, but before I recorded this intro, I've been mauling about if I should say what I'm about to say. And I think I should say it. About two weeks ago, the Quebec government decided to impose a passport vaccine if you are going to go in a uh, restaurant, gym, club, bar, or something like that, at least for now. That could change anytime. And uh, to be honest, that kind of weighs heavy on my heart because it felt like that's not freedom. One thing I love about Canada is when I came here and we moved here, I felt like the first time I was free. Yes, I was free in the Philippines, but it's very different here, you know? And with this passport vaccine that they're imposing, it's not, I I don't agree with it. Obviously, you don't have to agree with me, And that's okay. We can disagree, but at least we understand each other. And as long as we discuss in a very mature manner, I think that's fine. I'm just saying what's coming from my heart and it's really bothering me. So for all the Canadians, as you know, the federal government is, the federal election is coming up. And I... If you don't like what they're doing, this is the time for you to make a change. Go out and vote, man, because this is the only time they actually listen. And this is the only time that they cannot help but listen to you because that vote counts. You don't think it does? You don't think it doesn't, but it does. So please, please go out and vote on September 20th. And uh, yeah, let's, let's get at it, you know. Now let's talk about the episode. Through this podcast, I've met different kinds of people, and this week's guest is possibly one of the most unstoppable force I've ever had the opportunity to meet. She's a great example of it doesn't matter where you're from, what matters is you don't stop moving towards your goal. It's a really good episode, so I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Our guest today is an author, a business coach, and a digital entrepreneur. Everyone, please welcome Salwa Ibalin. Yay! <laughs> Thank you. How are you doing, Salwa? I'm doing amazing. Thank you. First of all, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate it for having me. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, before we continue, would you like to promote anything? 
Well, as we talk about this and a little bit about my story, I definitely want to talk about the book. Uh, we can do this in the end if you want, so it makes more sense for the listeners. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, just men at least mention the book. Sure. So the book is um, the stories of immigrant women entrepreneurs in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so I interviewed over 100 women, but in the end, we collected 28 stories. Mm -hmm. It's been in the making for two and a half years. And the book highlights the stories of immigrant women from all over the world who came to the United States, start their life here, and eventually start a business in the U.S. Man. So the book is very interesting because you have women from all over the world, and they have different experiences as immigrants, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm myself an immigrant twice, actually. Twice. And that's why I, I felt compelled to put this project together. Mm, awesome. We'll talk more about the book later, but I want to focus about, on you for now. Uh, so please tell us what's your background and where were you born? Yeah, so I was born in Morocco, as you know. And uh, when I was a kid, my mom and I, we immigrated to Belgium. Uh, I'm not sure why, actually, because we have no family there. We first went to France, and then from France, my mom remarried to this Belgium-Moroccan man, mm -hmm. and um, we ended up staying there. And um, so I spent all my life in Belgium until the age of 20 years old when I had the urge to come to New York City. Mm. Now I look back, I'm like, I had, I don't know why I came. I just wanted to prove myself that I could dream big and make it happen, and uh I arrived here and then it became a second second time immigrant, this time on my own. Mm. And then I've lived in New York for 15 years. So New York is really home to me. Uh, but after being here for 15 years and understanding the challenges of immigrants here, I decided that it was time for me to leave. <laughs> I don't know why we do that. Like we work so hard to hit a goal. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, what? Okay, now I can leave again. Mm -hmm. And um, so then I started the digital nomad lifestyle, and it's mm -hmm. almost three years now, where I live and work uh, from countries to countries. Mm, that's awesome. So, yeah. Let's um, let's dial back a little bit. I want to talk more about your history. Uh, you said you your mom and uh, you moved to France first, and then Belgium. Right. Do you, you didn't have siblings? Uh, so my mom. So we had a really. Um, dysfunctional slash toxic uh, beginning without mm. really knowing it, you know, because you're in it, you're in the mix, mm. but you, you don't, don't know. know. Yeah, you don't know until it hits you later. But like, wait, wait a minute, this mm. is not a normal childhood. So my mom went through a very bad divorce with my dad. And in the 80s, she already had four kids with my father. It's a whole different stories, uh, especially the position of women back then. Mm. My mom was not educated. She come from a small village in Morocco and she really had no opportunity so after the divorce she found herself with four children not being able to do anything and so her escape at that time was to go visit her sister in France and so she did that and I was the only child that was able to go so my dad actually allowed her although they were divorced he allowed her to go with me only because I was still a baby mm -hmm. and uh, he kept my brothers and sisters so later on I actually was separated from them and I never met them until my sister was 18 years old and I was about 14. Yeah, that's wow. the first time I met them. It's crazy. I mean, she looked like me when I saw her and I was like, we look alike, but we're two different, two different humans. Very yeah. 
And so my mom um, had didn't really have choices and she remarried in Belgium and her goals was to eventually reunite with her children and then move up, um, you know, by learning the language, <clears throat> passing her driver's license. So for me, I saw my mom being a hero as a kid because mm. she came from nothing to building this slowly. Mm. And I think that's where I got that strength. And then subconsciously, I repeated the same cycle, exactly the same thing. I moved to a new country by myself, didn't speak the language, didn't know anybody. <laughs> it only later hit me that we repeat the cycle because it's normal to you, but it, yeah. in psychology, that's a whole different thing. Yeah, so yeah, that's, that's why. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, but um, so in Belgium, does did your mom tell you that you have siblings or you grew up not knowing them? No, I knew. I knew because my mom was very much emotionally unavailable in the sense that she was depressed. I mean, she all she cared about was to get her kids and she forgot. Not that she did it on purpose, but her goal yeah. was work, make money, save, trying to bring your children back. Mm -hmm. And uh, but in the meantime, in her second marriage with my stepdad, my youngest sister was born and um, then they divorced again. My second my stepdad was as toxic as my dad. And so then we found ourselves in women's shelters. And from there, we moved to a small studio apartment and a and uh, it, it was it was struggle. And mm -hmm. I'm telling you, I didn't know anything was struggle until <laughs> later in life when I realized, wait a minute, we went from, you know, toxic marriage and divorces and mm -hmm. abusive husbands and, you know, women's shelter. And then eventually my sister and I ended up in foster with a foster mm -hmm. family for six years. Part -time. <clears throat> yeah, it was part time because my mom, bless her heart, she didn't know. I mean, we're talking about five children, you know. Mm -hmm. She had to care for so she was sending money in morocco she was trying to figure us out and we we are growing up abroad we're growing abroad so we have a completely different mentality so my mom <laughs> couldn't really understand you know we wanted freedom and we wanted all of these things and she's like no this is how super strict and so we're very confused kids like we would go to school or we would go to the foster family and they were like caucasian couple and they would teach her things that at the house was not allowed. <laughs> I'll give you an example. Uh, in the way I grew up, so many things may have changed, but the way I grew up, you have to uh, be submissive to your parents. You mm -hmm. listen, you don't respond back, and you look down. That's what you need to do when your mom says you look down. With the Caucasian family... Oh, sorry. Literally, you look down? You have to look that you can't look at my mom. Yeah, this is like serious. This is serious. Like if my oh, mom was screaming at me, I had to bow. I had to like look down. I can't because that's a sign of submission that I'm listening to you. Yeah. And with my Caucasian family, looking down is a sign of disrespect. Yeah, because they're looking. Eyes, yes, to make sure you're listening. So we were like eight years old, and you we were like, what? <laughs> like here we have to do this here, and then we were confused because we don't know. We're a bunch of confused kids. I think. Mm -hmm. The immigrants, uh, I think first generation immigrants, they're very confused people. I mean, I was because everything is different between mm -hmm. the way people think, the religion, the, the culture norms, everything is different. So confused us a lot. Yeah, definitely. Especially like you said, you were brought up in a very conservative uh, household and she's Muslim, your mom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you? Well, me, it's a whole different topic. So... Because the way I grew up, I started to debate on a lot of these things. So religion became um, 
you know, I questioned everything. And my mom is was not like that. She 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 doesn't. For her, you were born Muslim, you grew up Muslim, you are a Muslim. Mm-hmm. So you have to follow what the Islam saying. Mm-hmm. And my sister and I, we were very much Westernized. We didn't understand why we had to do all of these things. So <laughs> it created a lot of it created a lot of turmoil between the family. And I was really pro women empowerment, pro feminism, pro all of that, and it didn't match. Mm-hmm. So it led me at the age of 17, I just left the house. I left really early. Um, and I was I was planning this from a long time ago. I think 14, 15, I was mm. like, hey, I'm waiting on that. I'm waiting on that thing. Um, and I actually left before at 17. So before I'm turning 18, I mean, I have so many stories to tell you. You would laugh. Oh, <laughs> uh, we have time. <laughs> we have time. Okay, I'll tell you one. My mom left for Morocco. So every year she would go to Morocco to try to reunite with the children, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that year I turned 17 and then I graduated from high school and I waited for my mom to leave. And so I was born summertime, <laughs> I would just hate it, you know? As soon as she left, I went to the capital, so Brussels, which was an hour ish away from where I grew up, a, a city called Namur. And I know there's one in uh, Montreal, I think, Namur. Mm-hmm. I think there is a city in. in it's not a city, but it's a place, yeah. It's a place. So we have mm-hmm. a city in Belgium called Nami. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I waited for my mom to leave. And then what I did is I went to Brussels. I looked for an apartment. Mind you, I'm underage. Huh? <laughs> apartment. And then what I did is I got a job as a student job um, at a, a fast food restaurant called Quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Belgium brand. And then they got me a job for summer. And then I made, this is terrible because it's like falsifying documents, but I made a copy. We're talking about 2001, you know, I made a copy of my income, the, the check they, they give me, and I made three of them. I falsified the dates and I showed three of them. So when I got, <laughs> when I find the apartment, they asked me if I had a job and I said, yes, mind you, it was just a student thing. So it was not long term, but I made three copy of them to show them. Yeah, the last three months this is where I've been working and this is my salary. And then I brought my my friend with me who was older and she we both looked really nice, you know, dressed and we spoke well and we present and they didn't even check my age. And then <laughs> I, and then I got it. I got the studio and I signed a year lease. And I remember the freedom of mm. I am no longer in my mom's house. This was freedom. And so when she came back and she found out, uh, it was it was fight. Like she she was like a girl, have to stay home until her marriage. She this, 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 this. It was really bad in our culture to leave, especially in, in these times. I and mean, it's not long ago, but now things have changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> when she went to Morocco, how long did she stay? She would stay for the summer for oh. at least one to two months. Yeah. But she would do this uh, all our youth because her job was to try to get the children back. So my sister and I often went to camp. I mean, we went through so many things, but that built resiliency. It built those survival skills. I mean, we were camping in Germany or many places. Or sometimes the foster family would, would care for us. So I also think that if it wasn't for the foster family, I don't think we would have uh, ended up as good as as I am today. I don't know if that makes sense, but we came from a, such a broken environment. I mean, mm-hmm. a immigrant mom, sing, single mom of five with no money, no education. She she didn't know anything about anything. 
you know, <laughs> my homework, she couldn't read, she couldn't help me. So I was messing up with school. And I really think that your environment predicts your future. Mm-hmm. It's proven, you know, so if you don't have a good following as a child, you know, to make sure you have healthy food and and good activities and you have good studies and, you know, some some good support system, you're bound to fail. And mm-hmm. honestly, my sister and I, we were going down that route. And my mom was not even present. It, and, and I'm not mad at her because she was suffering, you know, so I yeah. can't blame her. But honestly, we were kind of left to figure stuff out on our own. I forgot what was your question. <laughs> no, you, you answered it. That was I good. It. Yeah, yeah. So do you still have a relationship with the, your foster parents? Um, so around my teenage years, it started to fall out because wow. I became more and more not aggressive, but I was very lost and confused. So I wasn't listening to no one. And we cut it off when I was about 14 years old. We cut it off. I didn't want to be with them. And again, because of the mix of culture, like what we were doing at their house and what they were doing, I was just really lost and confused. So we stopped seeing each other when I was about 14. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, last year, as I was doing my digital nomad journey, my mom, so I went back to Europe and my mom uh, was about to get knee surgery. So I took some time off to take care of her. So one day... I'm dropping her off at the hospital for her, you know, weekly, what do you call that? Uh, when the doctor check on her leg or whatever. Mm. So she had a session there. So I'm dropping her off. And then as I go to leave the hospital, I decided to sit at the cafeteria of the hospital so I can work. And this is very strange because I was not supposed to go there. And I decided to go in the far end of the cafeteria. And as I'm sitting down, talking about last year so i'm 38 years old now so it's 37 so think about the age of 14 to 37 it's It's a long time and i'm looking for a plug to plug my laptop and i see people looking at me and i hear this is sandua i hear that from the back of my head and i turn and i look and this is an old couple and I look at them, they look at me, we look at it. It's a weird silence. <laughs> they recognize me. I don't know how they did because I've changed so much. I'm mm-hmm. taller, bigger. I'm like, I'm a woman now. And they were shocked. And then I went over and I was like, is that you? And then we hugged and kissed. Huh. And they were coming there because the guy, the what my step, my uh, foster father uh, has cancer. And he was going to the hospital for his... Uh, monthly uh, meetings but think about this what are the chances you know that we meet at the exact time exact day and i've lived in the u.s for all these years and so i reconnected with them and they actually in the book oh that's amazing that's great i want to hear more about that later so you said 20 years old you said you know what i'm moving to the u.s what drove you to migrate to america um I think what was happening in my head is that I wanted to prove to myself and to my family and to my mom that a girl, first of all, a woman, you know, my age, young and with no resources, could attain almost the, not impossible, but with those circumstances, there was no way I could make it to U.S. I mean, I had no money. Like, we were broke. We were on food stamps. We we're the lowest of the lowest. There's no money. So how the hell 
am I going to be able to come here? Uh, but what saved me is, first of all, my mindset, but also I had an international passport. So I was able to come here as a tourist, but mm. I wanted to stay. So I knew I wanted to go to New York, and I also knew I wanted to stay. Why New York? I think New York was the biggest thing I could think in my mind. Because I, I went through my mind, I was like, well, let's try Paris and let's try London. But this is one, this was not as a big goal. It wasn't exciting enough. I knew that if I could make it in New York, I could make it anywhere. And that stay is real. So I chose New York City. Oh my God. If I had known the amount of problems I would get <laughs> before I went, <laughs> I don't know if I would have done it again. You know, I, I just had so many problems back to back to back to back. Did you finish school in Belgium before you move? So I finished high school, yes. And then I went to university in Brussels, which I dropped out after a year. And then I went to college in the United States and mm. I studied business and I graduated here in New York. But wow. I went there at 26 or 27, way later. Um, yeah. You, you, I guess you saved up in Belgium money. Um, say, what is say that again? I said, I guess you saved up money in Belgium to move to the US because it's expensive, no? No, I didn't. That's why it's very interesting. All I had, and I remember this. Yeah, but I, honestly, when you hear those stories, I'm like, this is how I did it. First of all, I was ready mentally. So that means that I was willing to take on any jobs. So, and I was young and fit and I knew I could do that. Uh, but the second thing is my first gig in the US was an au pair. Have you heard about that? Yeah, I've heard of it, but uh, for the listeners, tell them more. Au pair is like a full-time nanny. So I actually found an agency and that was my ticket to go to the US because I don't think I would have been able to without that. So full-time nanny and the nannies come from international other countries. And the reason why they go there is to, they can, you know, learn about the culture, learn the language and the contract is supposed to be for one year. And then they have to go back to their respective countries. Mm. That's how I got uh, in, in the US. And so I found a family in Connecticut and in my mind, I thought New York, Connecticut, ah, next door. Meanwhile, it's like <laughs> four hours. It's four or five hours train. It's so far away. I'm almost by Massachusetts. I had no clue. Um, but I did find a family there. And then the, the beauty of that is that they give you a place to stay and they give you some money. At that time, I think it was $600 a month, which worth nothing. Like you can do nothing. No, nothing. But it was better than nothing. Nothing. So. Mm -hmm. But guess what? After three months, they fired me. Why? What did you do? Did you steal something? No, <laughs> I didn't steal anything. <laughs> I think it was just a really bad match um, mm. because I was very young, but also very. When I got there, I was depressed. This was not what I wanted. You know, I found myself in the middle of nowhere, caring for three kids. It was boring. It, this is not what I thought about the U.S., so she noticed that and she wanted somebody who was submissive, who didn't ask questions and who would do the work and clean and cook. And, and I was not made to be that. You should have sent your mom. <laughs> I should have, yeah, probably, yeah <laughs> he would have done a much better job than me. Um, but after three months, we, we, were not, we were not seeing eye to eye. And she actually fired me. I didn't see it coming. But now I look back, I'm like, how can you tell a 20-year-old girl that she has two hours to pack and go. I had nowhere to go. Two, two hours. hours? Yes. She said, pick up your stuff and you go. She called the agency in her house and she was, 
she was the one who had more rights because she's the client. She's got a lot more money and influence. And I'm just a young girl. And I was Arab. She was Jewish. Add that to the mix. So all of this, and I was in tears. I was like, where am I going to go? Mm. And I remember there, I had 350 bucks. That's what I was left in my wallet. And so what I did, I went back to New York by train and I, I had a flip phone back then. And I said, okay, you know, it's like I'm talking to a team with myself. All right. I can't tell mom because mom's going to be, she's going to freaking, you know, she's going to freak out. And then she can't give me money because we, she, we broke. So <laughs> do something out. So by the luck, it is so crazy. I went through all the numbers I knew and all the people. And that, that's really a skill that I highly recommend to whoever wants to start something is to ask, ask, ask for help, ask for it. And I did that. I went on my phone. I'm like, who do I know who knows someone here in New York who can give me a place to stay for the night? And funny enough, and this is how crazy this is, I had about, I had two friends who came to New York for the fashion week on vacation. Two girls, mm-hmm. my age that I knew. And I was like, oh my God, where are you? And she said, we staying in New Jersey. And I was like, okay. So I arrived in New York. And then I remember this very clearly. I said, okay, I have enough money for a taxi. I arrived in front of 430, uh, the train station. And I told the guy, I'm going to New Jersey. And he goes, where in New Jersey? I said, what? New Jersey. I thought New Jersey was a city. <laughs> you know, the whole New Jersey, the whole state. The whole I'm going state. there. He goes, where? I was like. Uh, I don't know. So I had to figure this out. So then I gave him the address. And I remember he dropped me off in Newark, which is not a good area. Mm-hmm. And when I was there, he said to me, $80. Now, mind you, I said, what? $80 at that time. This was a lot of money. And that this is all, you know, it's like it's taking all chunk of money I've left. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then my friend and I, they host me for three nights and we slept in one room. This is so gangster. In one room, I slept on the floor. They, two of them slept in the bed and someone else on the floor. And then I had to figure my way out from there. But that was the very first, uh, you know, move that I had to make. So how did you figure it out? Like, <laughs> You got time? because uh, We have time. Okay. All right. Okay. So here's what I did. I remember the next day I sat on the bed and I continued with who do I know who knows somebody. Mm-hmm. Because for me, I didn't want to tell my mom I just got fired. And I also needed to make money soon. And here's the very interesting fact. And also, connecting to this, I want to say, once you put your mind into something and you're really dedicated to find a way, you'll find a way. Hmm. Like things show up because you're there. And this, this is what happened to me. I mean, it's a crazy story. So. I looked on my phone and I, I connect, I asked these people and I used to work in Brussels in the nightclub. I was a bartender. Mm. And I remember that the owner, which I had a really good relationship with, had a cousin in America somewhere. So I called and I asked, I said, look, I'm in New York, I'm New Jersey. I, I need to stay here. I don't know. Do you know somebody? He goes, yeah, my, my brother, he lives in Jersey. He's, I said, New Jersey. I was in Jersey. He was in New Jersey. He goes, yeah. I'm going to call him for you and see what he can do. I'm like, oh, my God. I was telling my friend. I said, I think we got a, we got a plan. He calls the cousin, uh, his cousin. Uh, and then he says, then he gave me the phone number. And he said, goes to this address. Uh, he's expecting you. 
super. So I tell my friends, okay, we're going to go. So we jump in a cab again. We now have to pay again for a taxi. And we ended up in another part of New Jersey. And the guy had a restaurant because the other, his, uh, his cousin also had a, a restaurant. Mm. And um, he said, which one of you is Salua? And I said, it's me. He goes, welcome. He said, my, my, my cousin or my brother? He said, my cousin told me a lot about you. Come in. And I swear, this is what happened. For three months, they helped me out because my girl ended up leaving back to Europe. They helped me out with a job. I got a place uh, over the restaurant. And then they sponsored me for my first uh, English as a second language student visa. And this is how I made my slowly walk my way up. Oh, okay. <laughs> how was your English then? Oh, no, no English. Oh, my God. When I arrived at the airport, March 27, 2005, I had learned English in school, but in Belgium, taught by Belgian people mm-hmm. with a terrible accent. And we also learned the British English. Yeah. So I arrived. This is exactly what happened. I arrived at JFK. First time I had taken a flight that long. I was in, in a totally different world. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I have to figure out where to take the bus. So I'm like, where? have you been to JFK? It's like nope. a city. I heard. It's it's huge. And I don't, my English was very bad. So I find information. It's like, okay, information is the same in French. So I went to the information center and I told the lady, I showed her on my document. I said, I have to take this bus. And this is what she said. She goes, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure you talked to a woman or maybe uh, oh the peanuts are mother? I didn't I just didn't understand what she said. I was like, oh my God. And then I said, okay. And I left. And I was just like, kind of, <laughs> I tried to figure out what she was pointing to. Uh, but I finally found the bus. And then here's the funny thing. I have no idea about the tip system in the, in the US. Like, no clue. So I had my 20, it was $20. So I was prepared. So I had my $20. I had changed it. I arrived in front of the hotel because the first day I came, I came to New York. I stayed in a hotel for one week before I moved to the au pair thing. Mm. And um, the guy said, okay, he's taking my, my bag outside my, the car. And then I gave him the 20 and I'm waiting for my $3. And he said, because it was 17, <laughs> it was $17. So I remember this till this day. And he goes, thank you. And he walks away. <laughs> and I'm like, what, why is he taking my money? You know, I was just like, well, this is 17. And in my head, I'm like, all confused. So I remember this clearly in, in the tip system I learned later. So I'm a really good tipper today. But back then, I, you know, in Europe, we don't tip. We don't understand that. Oh, you didn't? You don't? No, no, no. People are paid per hour. They paid well. Uh, you know, mm. and they, they, that's why when you go to a restaurant in France or Belgium, people don't, they don't expect the tip. Maybe now a little bit more because of the American influence. But other than that, this is an american thing wow yeah we we do that here too in montreal we do the tips right right yeah, yeah it's it's a little bit like the u.s you know mm-hmm, exactly it's a like i said like um montreal is like half europe half american right i've been to montreal i actually really like it i think yeah. it's a between paris and new york in my head that's you crazy know? man the so, French, montreal i don't understand it yeah <laughs> i don't yeah it's a, it's a situation. Every time uh, Quebecois speaks yeah. to like a Parisien, it's yeah. going. There's always an issue. Oh my God! I look at people. I'm like, is this French? I, I don't. I don't understand it. You 
you and know? the thing is they're so prideful about it too yeah i'm like oh that's so funny so what kept you going even with all those problems with all those struggles what kept you going to stay i'm staying here right i actually don't know i think i had a vision i i just i think number one i felt like if i was going back it would be a failure hmm. i would be failing and i didn't want to be portrayed at that as that but it was in my mind you know because my mom didn't want me to go my mom was terrified of me leaving thousands of miles away she thought i was crazy uh, well you are crazy a little bit i think <laughs> you know they say there's a thin line between insanity and genius Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. so i'll keep that um so i think that was that the uh, fear of failure so i didn't want to go back for that reason and then i also knew that belgium was a country where i didn't i wouldn't have opportunities mm -hmm. and i had really big visions i wanted to do many things and i knew belgium would not give me these opportunities also because there's also racism we have to talk about this because yeah. in belgium uh Although it's a small, wealthy country, there's just a gap. You know, there, there's like a, a max uh, where you, you can't go further up. Like you oh, can't yeah. have a business. I think that's how I see it. You, you have opportunities, basic opportunities, but you can only reach to a certain level. You know, mm -hmm. after that, it's not, you know, if you're not part of the elite Belgium elites or certain family name or it, you won't make it you won't make it through that. And I knew that the U.S., I guess at that time, I believed in the American dream. I also knew there was a lot more immigrants here. I knew there's a big pockets of immigrants who created their own network. And I knew that I could navigate through that. So that I was aware of. And also, so I was telling you about racism. Oh, also Belgium is a country that has officially speak three languages, but two main which is French from the South and then Dutch, Flemish from the North. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to really get a high position in Brussels, for example, you would need to speak Dutch or Flemish. And I didn't. I had to have, I, I learned it for six years because it's mandatory in Belgium. You have to learn both languages. Mm -hmm. And I did just the basic to pass school, but I knew this was not a language I was interested in. So my, I was limited basically, you know? So, the, is it racism or more than on the prejudice side? Like you're not Brussels, you're not from Brussels, so or you're not from Belgium. You're gonna stay there. I think or, it's both. You know, because you gotta remember one thing: in Europe, uh, France, Belgium. Um, I'll talk about Belgium because I know this country. Uh, there's a lot of Moroccan immigrants, and a lot of them have bad reputation, especially back then. And that's because there's a huge so social and economic uh, problem that hasn't been solved. Now it's a little bit different because there's another, now I think there's about three or four, gen maybe three generations when the younger are more educated and, and, and they do more. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning, you have to think about this. My mom and I were both immigrate there. So we just like first immigrants. So I don't have parents who own properties who can educate me on things. I really have to start from the bottom. Mm -hmm. And so there's thousands and thousands of, of Moroccans who have, um, who have traveled to Belgium for better opportunities. 
And also because Belgium welcomed them at some point to rebuild the country after the Second World War. So there's a benefit to both of them. But at some point when there are too many of them, now it's becoming a problem and there's a lot of racism. And then on top of that, you bring the clash of culture where a lot of the parents to bring their kids to Belgium or have more children, they don't really... Um, there's a problem where what's happening on the streets and outside is different from what's happening at the house. So the parents are not really aware of what's going on. And also they're not always able to afford um, having all these kids. So there's a problem in both ways. Then these kids, they, because of racism, lack of opportunities and many other problems, they can't find a job. And till this day, there's a lot of studies there that was shown that if you have a certain name, if you have a certain color, you can't get an apartment. You can't go inside a nightclub. You can't get a job. There's so many. And so that's feeding the circle. If you don't do that, then what happened? You stay on the streets and then you get involved into drugs and gangs and other stuff. And then you have more racism because how? what is racism? If you, you feed the people who are ignorant with nonsense and then they vote for more people will will push the politicians. And then there's this whole thing. So I wasn't really proud of being a Moroccan in Belgium. You know, mm. I didn't want to be associated with that. But in the U.S., there was not as many. And then not only that, I was more people seeing me as uh, an exotic woman until 9-11. That's another. <laughs> I was just going to say. 9-11 was. Uh, I mean, I came way after that. But a lot of time people, when they see me, they knew they put me in the Latina box. They just be like, oh, she's Latina. They don't even some people don't even know what Morocco is. It's it's a whole different topic. But yeah, I think that was those two main reasons. Opportunity, lack of opportunities in Belgium, uh, fear of failures. And I just wanted to challenge myself to do big, big things. Mm -hmm. Did you talk about racism? How about in the U.S.? Do you other than obviously that you mentioned about uh, the September 11th? Right. Was there like, do you feel like it's more? prevalent in the U.S. or in Belgium is a different kind of racism? So good question. I think uh, racism exists all over the world. It's not, you know, just U.S. or Europe. But, but I, I think it's definitely different. I think right now in the U.S. there's a big problem towards African-Americans. And I've seen it with my own eyes. I mean, I've seen things happening in, in the U.S. when I'm like, there is a problem here. Um, in, in Belgium, there's also uh, racism, but... It, it's different because there's more communities of Moroccans, so Arabs, and then Africans. And uh, they, that created a whole set of problems that is different from the one in the U.S. In the U.S., I think, and, and I had to learn these things. So I'm, what I'm sharing is based on my own experiences, right? So some other people may disagree. But what I, I think is that here it's a, it's a deep, deep rabbit hole with what's happening with African-Americans because a lot of them lost their identities. So they're not a race, they're Americans, but they are part of something where they completely lost who they are and where they're from. And that's terrible. And that's hundreds of years like this. And then there's a deep, strong mentality of this racism that is almost ignorant. So a lot of people are without knowing they are. So they make difference and they, they they make the difference like without knowing they are doing it and that creates a lot of problems so i think the, the racism in the u.s uh, at least against black people has to start the solution has to start amongst the white people they have to discuss this and they also have to be aware 
that this is a problem. And a lot of times, most people say, oh, no, this was hundreds of years ago. We don't have racism now, but we do. <laughs> we do. And it's, it's a big problem. So you have that. And then in Europe, it's a different kind of racism. It's more based on, oh, these people from Africa and came to Belgium to steal our jobs and, and you know, to take advantage of this country, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, Belgium took over Congo, which is 60 times this size. And France, I mean, they, they colonized so many other countries and that's how they got so rich. And I'm not here to, you know, pinpoint on, okay, this country, this, this. I mean, what I'm saying here is there was a benefit for them at that time. Mm-hmm. So I feel like they shouldn't complain about having a um, multicultural countries. I think it's actually really good that this happened. Yeah, that's Not the colonialism, good. but the immigration part. Yeah, for sure. Completely agree. It's, it, immigration is important and it helps <laughs> the economy. Speaking of I immigration, so. sorry? I think so, yes. Yeah, there has been uh, studies that shows that you need immigrants to reinvigorate the economy. You need workers. Right. Like a good example here in um, here in Canada, um, a lot of people are not having kids. You know, right. we need people to to work and to have businesses. If we don't have people, the economy will halt, right. right? And the only way to supplement that is immigration. It's the easiest way. Right. Right. And it's still a problem because you see all of the immigrants, for example, here in the U.S. Most of, uh, I'd say, Latinos um, come here and they get jobs. I mean, it's so confusing because some people complain about that. But then in the end, if you don't have all those people who work in restaurants, who lawn your mom, who who goes uh, in the the field to pick up the the fruits and vegetables you eat, all the dirty jobs you don't want to do. Because Americans don't want to do these jobs. They need jobs. But yet they need it. Yeah, the jobs that apparently they were they're stealing. Exactly. <laughs> so, but again, in my book, I, I don't talk about any of this because I'm not a person that wants to debate or create any, you know, drama on any topics. I'm aware of them, and you ask me questions, so I tell you how I feel. Of course. But I like to focus more on the immigrants who come to a country because they have, they 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 are. They belong to that table. They have things to offer. A lot of them come here, they, they study, they bring a lot to the table, not only with the economy, but with many different things. You know, the mindset, the cultures, like think about Tex-Mex food. What is that? It's a mix between Mexican and, and food from south of the US. Mm-hmm. All of this, like all the fusions with many things, that's the beauty of, you know, people immigrant everywhere that that's what i think we should embrace yeah completely. Of- yeah completely agree so you mentioned your book let's talk about your book what was the motivation to write your book so motivation was actually a very vivid dream that woke me up and it, it's very interesting because i remember fighting with the dream and saying no it's not my mission i got so much on my plate i don't want to do that and i was the voice was like yeah you need to do that and i was like <laughs> oh, i don't want to do that well, what am i going to do with this this is not my job, I don't want to focus on immigrants. Mm-hmm. And I was very vivid. I remember rolling in my bed. I was like, okay, fine. So I got up. It was four, three or four in the morning. And what made me really do it, it's because as soon as I got up, I was debating. I was like, do I actually write this or no? And I turned on my phone. And what I like to do in the morning is to listen to some inspirational, motivational 
video. So I turned that on. And the first thing that came out, and I will never forget, it was, uh, so this guy, this author named Wayne Dyer, but he was talking about the, the, the poet Rumi. Mm-hmm. And Rumi has had a, a quote, a poem, where it says something like, when the secret of the morning whispers to you, do not go back to sleep. Do not go. It says that. Do not go back to sleep. Do not go back to sleep. Do not go back to sleep. Because the morning breeze has secrets to tell you. Listen. And I was like, I'm doing this book. (laughs) I think this was the sign. And then I, right there and there, it took me about a good hour to write a proposal. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I didn't know why. And so it kept flowing. I was like, okay, why the reason? I was like, one, you need to highlight the stories to inspire the people. Two, you need to let people know about immigrants are part of the economy. And then I was doing some research and I found out, for example, states like California has 40% of the states uh, of the businesses run and owned by immigrants. 40%. You know how much money is that economically? It's a lot. How can you deny immigrants? Yeah. And also, I don't know if you knew this, U.S. fought Mexico and it took over land from Mexico. So Texas, Arizona, um, New Mexico, all of these states were Mexico. Mm-hmm. They just moved the borders away. And then they were like, yo, you Mexican, go back to your country. But we are in our country. No, the border is right there. And that. So these are the things, you know, I, I wanted to highlight. But mainly, the main point uh, amongst others is I wanted to educate Americans that immigrants, because a lot of people think that, that immigrants are just poor people crossing the borders illegally by foot through the desert and they try to come here to steal their job and steal the whatever. And in this book, you will see women who are entrepreneurs who have lived here, came here legally and they worked and they worked their way up and they have a lot to bring to the table. And I wanted to show that like we have women from Switzerland and, and, and Australia but people are like, oh, they're white people. What? It has nothing to do with color. Immigrant is a person who leaves one country to start over in another place from scratch. Mm-hmm. That's what an immigrant is. It's not an expat. But a lot of people say, okay, immigrants say black and brown and expats are white people. Like, look at, the, look at the ignorance. This is not what it is. So I wanted to highlight these stories to really talk about this. So people can see women like me and be like, oh, she's an immigrant, but she's educated. She speaks a lot of languages. She makes her own money. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. You you help the economy. You don't just move. like You just, just don't suck on the tit of the government. We pay taxes. And you know what? Even illegal people who live in the U.S. pay taxes. Yeah, they do. And most of them actually are the most decent and the most like, oh, you have to do it. You have to pay. You have to do it, you know, because this, this is a good country. Uh, anyways. So, yeah. yeah. Um, is the book self-published or? Yeah, it is self-published. And the reason why I did it this way is because I didn't want a publisher to tell me how uh, the book needed to be done. I really mm. wanted it to be done my way. And um, I did it with a team of amazing people. I had two, I had two people in my team with three. Um, a designer, an editor, and a copywriter, and they did all of this for free because they wanted to be part of the project. I even had no money for a book. I was like, well, <laughs> do this. 
but I'm also a hard worker and I find ways. So like right now, like how this podcast happened? Tell me. Exactly. You know what? A, a, a great question. That's actually how it started is, you know, being an immigrant and I hear immigrant stories coming from family members or friends or whoever. There was a, I'll say a voice that whispered to me that says, you have to write this down. You have to save this. And I said, like, as you, I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm busy. I got things to do, you know. But I felt like once it goes away, it's gone. And I felt like it's so valuable. All the, all the, the morals of these stories are so valuable that I have to keep it. I'm not as smart as you. I'm not as uh, good, good at pitching at things that like, hey, do this with me. Um, so I'm like, okay, I just put, I did actually, my plan was to write short stories of each immigrant, but it's more a fictionalized version because I, I, for some reason, I cannot write um, uh, nonfiction. I always have to be fictionalized. It, it like 95% is nonfiction, but at least 5% is uh, fictionalized. Anyways, so yeah, I wrote, I, I was planning to write a book and have short stories. I think it was 13. I got to up to seven and then life happened. I couldn't continue anymore because as you know it's a lot of work to write yeah it's a lot of work but yeah why don't, you, why don't you just take each of these interviews and make a small story out of it and publish that that has been uh asked to uh to, in, suggested to me maybe someday like i said i'm i'm lazy i like this you know i like podcasting i really enjoy and actually the name i was the name of the book was an immigrant's life Mm. Hence the podcast's name. I still have the stories. I have still kept it and I still have the ideas. But lately I've been lazy. I've been focusing on the podcast a lot. You can leave them in a box. You need to publish them. Yeah. Someday. Hopefully. But I, nice. I, really, I really appreciate that though, that you said that. So can you share the struggles that you had to endure in publishing this book? Struggles. Uh, yeah, but first of all, I didn't have any money. So that's that's number, that's number one start. So I was like, okay, how are we going to do this? So the first thing I did is I actually, after I created a proposal, is I created a, uh, a campaign on GoFundMe. So, and I was asking for donation. And remember, I was telling you, ask for help. I actually do that a lot, but I also help. So I'm not just like trying to go out there and get <laughs> I actually very resourceful and I help a lot of people as well. So I went ahead and I created a campaign. And then after that, I was like, well, I need women's story because I wanted to focus on women. I said, well, I need to find the women immigrants. Like, where are they? And believe it or not, this whole book was created while I was on the go. So most of the women in the book, I actually don't know. I've never seen them except on Zoom like this. I've never seen them in person. So that's very interesting. And I think how I got the women, because that was a challenge for me, is I actually I asked. I posted on Facebook, on LinkedIn, uh, and I said, hey, I'm working on this book. If you're interested, I have a proposal. Let me know. And then they had to fit a certain criteria. Which is? Want, well, I wanted people to be in business for at least a year and make money from that business. I didn't want it to be just a hobby because then you don't, you're not counted as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, I also wanted to interview them to see if their story was interesting. Uh, I, they, didn't, they didn't need to be crazy drama like mine, but it needs to be a story. I wanted to know what was your process with the immigration system, for example, also not needed to know why did you come here? Was it like easy breezy or was it really, 
you know, because a lot of people, when they come here, they don't want the American dream. Sometimes they're fleeing violence in the country and they come here, uh, you know, because they just need to be safe. So there, there's many different reasons and it's not always all America, you know. So I wanted to hear um, most of the stories. And honestly, there are some really, really good stories. And I told you, I interviewed over 100. And if you look at my spreadsheet, you'll see, no, no, no. There's a lot of them I couldn't put in the book because either I didn't fit, I didn't think they fit, but also I wanted people who really wanted to be part of this. Like not somebody, because you have a lot of entrepreneurs who's like, oh yeah, maybe I'll do it. No, 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 no. This is a project that is the first project like it. There's no other book about immigrant women entrepreneurs. You're going to find entrepreneurs, you're going to find immigrants, but you don't find anything with the three. So I wanted this to be really a special thing. And I wanted people that in the book need, wanted to be part of this. Like, you know, and also I told them once the book is published, I need you to help me share it with you, with, with the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a bonus when you do a collaboration like that. Like right now I have 28 women. You do that time 500 because most of them has, a, they have a list of at least 500 people in the network. Some more. I have one of them. She has like 70,000 followers on Instagram. 70,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, these women, they, they no joke. Like I got really good. So I know that if they share it, we'll be able to sell this easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my goal is not to sell. If we sell, great. But I'm not planning to be rich out of this. What I'm wanted to, to do is to highlight this in order to open another avenue, which could be a docu-series, documentaries, or another book with a publishing label. Like I want this to really you know, be highlighted, especially right now with what's going on in Afghanistan and the, the women's right there with ICE, the immigration system in the, in the U.S. who's changing. Also, we have a new president and that's also the vice president is a, a daughter of immigrants from Southeast Asia and Jamaica. And we also have uh, the Black uh, Lives Matter movement. So this is really a good time for my book to be out there and so people can talk about this. And hopefully this will open to other opportunities. Yeah, I agree. Was there a person that you leaned on and pushed you to keep on going? No, myself. Really? Yeah, I just think my my inspiration would be my mom. So the book is dedicated to her. But my mom didn't do anything. She didn't want to give me a photo for the book. She's like, <laughs> oh, she's like nah. Ah, I don't want to do anything. I don't know if you have this, but I feel like some of our immigrant parents, they just like, they have no, my mom has no idea what I do. She said to, she says to her friend, Salua's job, she talks to her computer. That's what she said. <laughs> well, it's kind of right. Well, yeah, it is right. <laughs> but she doesn't understand. She's like all day, blah, blah, blah. In English, she doesn't understand. She's like, so she does talk to her computer. So um, I think when the book is going to be what well, I'm going to get a copy for my mom, I think when she sees it, she, she'll, but, but she wasn't calling me. I'm like, oh, have you done your chapter? No, nah, none of that. That's yeah. Just- <clears throat> I think it's like, like you said earlier that she's just so focused on what she needs to do, her goal, or obviously her goal is different now, but because right. that was her life uh, for many, many years, that became her life. That right. forgetting about, I'm not saying like forgetting about you, but you know what I mean? Like, oh, Salo was always going to be on the side. Right. I don't know. I think my mom is just disconnected. We, we are very much very different. And in the book, I talk about my story with my mom 
um, which is, uh, you know, you don't choose, you don't choose your family. And sometimes I wonder what the hell, like we have nothing in common, but yet with the same people, just don't know how to, that makes any sense. Like this year for the first time, my whole life, I decided to go back to Morocco for six months. Never done this, like lived there for six months. So I went to see my dad who I'd never seen for. And then I went to, how was that? That was very strange. I mean, uh, by the way, I'm on YouTube at Salouai Balin. You should go check it out. I put, I actually do all videos of my travels. And uh, one of the video was, let's go back to the mountain, small village of Morocco and go meet my dad and see, you know, and just experience that. And I think, first of all, one thing that I realized is I look Moroccan. Sure. I'm a hundred percent Moroccan by blood. Yes. But when I arrived there, especially in the small mountains, I was like, what the F am I doing here? <laughs> I don't belong there. First of all, didn't have internet, but that's okay. And then I was sitting there with a bunch of people and most of, because we that's another language. So I speak Darija, which is the Arabic Moroccan, Moroccan Arabic. But then you have another language, which I'm from, uh, which is Shlaha, which is the Berber, which from the South Mountain. So that's a dialect which is really old, like before the Arabs, uh, they spoke that dialect. I don't speak it. My family does. They all speak it. I don't. So I really felt out of place. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Everybody knows. Okay. They know who I am as far as she's the daughter of so-and-so, but I felt very much lost and I didn't belong there. And that was very interesting because all my life I associate, you know, me being Moroccan. So, um, so why was I telling you this? We get off sidetrack a lot. It's all good. It's all good. It's a conversation, like I said. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I mean, you what, go ahead and talk to them about a book. They'd be like, what? Like, like, hey, I'm writing a book. They'd be like, huh? <laughs> they have all the worries. The, know, first, the first thing will be like, did you make money off of it? Yeah. Is that money? No. Okay. So we don't care. You know? Yeah. I remember when I started the podcast, my mom was says, what did she say? She said, well, uh, are you gonna make money off of this? I'm like, no, it's not about that. Not yeah, everything's they, about money. Like, why are you doing it then? Yeah, exactly. But going back to your YouTube channel, I did watch some some of the videos, and it were very interesting, very inspiring. And yes, I remember when one of the videos you were trying to cross a, a street in Morocco. That was very <gasps> interesting. Do not. Do, do, do you see how this is deadly you know i looked at the rate i was like there's no did you see that nonsense with the light <laughs> yes and then not green here but you're like oh my god the first time i had to cross the street i was like oh i started following people i was like okay i'm going with him you know it's like frogger the game frogger exactly it's so it's so dangerous i mean yeah um yeah but if you get a chance watch this one where it's celebrate the end of ramadan in Morocco, and you'll see that's typical, typical families in Morocco. That's how they live, and that's my dad on there. Okay, that's and cool. I try to show, uh, you know, and, and, and I think it's really good that I did that because now going back here, my people look at this video and be like, oh, what happened to you, Salua? You just let go. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, <laughs> put the thing in my hair, don't dress, no makeup, Ali. We just. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Listen, we're getting there, but before we close out, I want to ask you one more question. Sure. You're a well-accomplished individual, but do you have other goals that you haven't accomplished yet? 
Yeah, definitely. So um, first of all, I'm working on an e-commerce brand of Moroccan products that's going to be launched next year. Uh, so that I'm really proud of because I did that when I was in the US. We can talk about this on the next podcast when it's launched. Uh, I think this would be really a good, good, good product. But in the meantime, one of my major dreams that I would love to do with this book is to actually pitch Netflix. I would like to pitch them for a docu-series where I can interview women of impact around the world. For example, let's say a doula in Uganda who's been helping hundreds of women uh, giving birth uh, to children and women who had, you know, uh, who have otherwise, who the baby would have died or who have, you know what I mean, like they would need. Like I want to talk to women of impact and I want to take a camera crew with me and really take people on adventures to really see uh, what's going on out there and how the mindset works, you know, because you have to have a vision and you have to be strong and have courage to do these things. You know, my story is nothing compared to some of the stories I've read and, and, and heard. And so I really, this would be a dream of mine and I will pitch Netflix. Hopefully they'll accept because I've seen a lot of things on Netflix that I was like, it's not even a quarter good as, you know, it's like, really? This is a show? Like, what? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a bunch of stuff. Like, this one girl, she traveled the world and she goes on dates. I was like, well, she can do that. I can do my own thing, too. And, you know, <laughs> the whole crew team for a date. She's like, hey, what's your name? My name is... I'm like... Yeah. Unfortunately, that's... A, it's it's like a clickbait, right? Like, it's an easy thing to watch. Very yeah, interesting. TV that people watch. And I feel like there should be... have. It should have room for, for more. Do you remember the show, uh, Anthony Bourdain? Hmm. Yeah. Remember that? So he was amazing. I watched a lot of these things and basically I want to do something similar, but instead of food, it would be women of impact, like going to really rural areas, even in the U S and meet change makers, you know? Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah, for sure. Listen, I think we're there, but do you have any last remarks before we close out? No, if people are interested about the book, they can check out immigrantwomenentrepreneurs.com or my website at saluaibalin.com. And I'm on all social media, especially on Instagram and YouTube. And yes, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I will share this with my network as well so you can get more people coming to your podcast. And uh, yeah, it was really a pleasure. Thank you. So I really appreciate it. Have a good evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, Salwa, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Aaron Del Yosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.